Jack Farley here with a special treat for you today on Forward Guidance. Today's guest is a man who, up until very recently, was running a $20 billion fixed income book in Europe, but he's left the world of portfolio management behind him to focus full-time on his passions, writing and thinking about the macro issues that are driving confounding moves in markets, moves such as the flattening of the yield curve, which has perplexed many investors, including myself. I mean, inflation's at 40-year highs, and yet bond yields are declining, bonds are rallying. I can't make heads or tails of it. So I'm really glad that Alfonso is here. We talk about credit growth slowing, central bank liquidity tightening, and the huge ramifications that these factors could have for commodity prices, the value versus growth spread, and other sort of reflation trades. Uh, that you might have encountered. Just a heads up that my lighting is a little bit iffy in this interview. I was actually staying near Lake Lanier, Georgia uh, on a company-wide retreat for Blockwork. So just a heads up about that. All right, without further gilding the lily, please enjoy my conversation with Alfonso Pecatiello. Alfonso, so great to have you on Forward Guidance. Welcome. Hey, Jack, my pleasure. Nice to see you again, or to see the ghost version of you. Yes, the, the lighting in here is a little bit strange, but it's actually, Alfonso, it's on theme because I am on a company retreat uh, for Blockworks in Lake Lanier, which is well known as a haunted lake in Georgia. So I, I may be the ghost that everyone's looking right. for. I see. Okay, cool enough. Then uh, have, fun, have fun in Georgia, but let's see what we can do with this recording. Very happy to be on the show here at Forward Guidance. Let's kick it off. The pleasure is all mine, Alfonso. For those of you who don't know, Alfonso is one of the best financial newsletters writers out there. He's the author of The Macro Compass. And up until a few days ago, he was a portfolio manager of over $20 billion for a fund in Europe. But he has left that fund manager life behind him to educate people on the world of macro. Uh, Alfonso, I want to start by asking you about the ghost that has been haunting markets for, let's say, the past two weeks. After Thanksgiving, markets were hit by a huge risk-off episode that buoyed bonds higher, bond yields lower, uh, really hit the stock market hard. Interestingly, you know, it didn't hit the cyclicals as hard as it hit uh, the growth names. I want to ask you, Alfonso, well, number one, what have you made of this risk-off uh, episode we're going to get into Omicron? But my first question is, Alfonso, let's say there's someone who's new to macro, and they saw the red-hot inflation print of October that was released in November of 6.2%, and they said, hmm, bonds pay a fixed coupon that are paid in dollars. Dollars are being inflated away at the rate of 6.2%. I'm earning, what, 2% on a 30-year bond. I'm going to short 30-year bonds. I'm going to go buy a put option on TLT or sell a call on TLT, even worse. Needless to say, that did not work out for that investor. Why is that the case? Oh, what a great question, Jack. So let me try to answer that. Um, and the short answer I would give you is that that inflation print is one print is the measure of inflation year on year against 12 months ago. A third year bond instead reflects the prospect for inflationary pressures and real growth over the next 30 years. Plus it reflects what's called term premium. So basically the premium that investors would demand to own a very long bond with all the risks attached to it, rather than owning and rolling ownership of short-term government bonds. So when you have a 6% inflation print and you look at the impact it has on a 30-year bond, you should rather ask yourself the question, what is the prospect over the long term of this very short-term data point we have seen? And if I need to answer that question, then 
the market interpretation of it was the Federal Reserve this time is finally going to give away the transitory narrative and it's going to tighten in because now the public opinion and um, the purchasing power of people had enough of a hit over the last six months, which is reflected by the fact that real wages are actually on a year-year basis negative. So the real purchasing power of people has shrunk enough and inflation expectation might start to become slightly de-anchored on the upside that the central bank will need to tighten. And when the central bank tightens in a world where let's say, the structural forces are still dragging the potential real growth of our economy down, and the cycle as well seems to have topped already, when the central bank tightens in this environment, then it just exacerbates these long-term structural downward forces on real economic growth, and therefore it anchors long-term yield lower rather than higher. And that is also reflected in the shape of the curve, Jack. So five-year interest rates, two-year interest rates, those are repricing up, actually. So short-term interest rate traders are having to reprice their expectation for the Federal Reserve to effectively be um, forced or more prone to act to fight these inflationary pressures. But then the long-term bond yields and the bond trader, they look at a completely different dynamics, right? They look at long-term drivers of real growth and inflationary pressures. And their conclusion is drastically different. And this is effectively reflected in a yield curve, which is flattening pretty aggressively. So people are selling short-term bonds, short-term bills and notes on the short end of the yield curve because they think that the Fed and central banks will tighten policy hike rates. And they're using that money perhaps to buy long-term bonds because they are more bearish on growth and inflation looking forward, not just the snapshot. Alfonso, can you break down why you think growth will slow? You mentioned that real personal income is, is negative uh, in, in terms of an annual growth rate. What are you seeing in terms of credit growth? And then also, how does the prospect of central bank tapering impact growth going forward? And, and also, what sort of assets do you want to own when growth is slowing, credit growth is slowing, and the central bank is, is tapering to boot? Yeah, so um, in the latest... Um, article uh, at my free newsletter on Substack, the Macro Compass, I highlighted the fact that um, one of the drivers of the Macro Compass, which is the credit impulse, um, actually had slowed down. And this credit impulse is a pivotal metric uh, in my macro overview because it's able to predict uh, with a 6 to 12 months lag both the real economic performance and the earnings and the nominal growth uh, animal impulse basically that will hit our economy with a lag of 6 to 12 months and of course also asset class performances going forward both in a relative and in an absolute basis so it's a quite important metric to watch and this credit impulse that uh, we have plotted in this chart against the S&P earnings growth year on year with a lag of 12 months so basically if you look at these two lines and you lag uh, the S&P year-on-year earnings by 12 months, you have a fantastic correlation between the two da data series. And in this chart extends all the way to six years ago, but you know it, it extends actually to decades ago. So this credit impulse really works in anticipating the inflection points for year-on-year -year earnings with actually a predictive power of about 12 months. 
So if you were looking at this credit impulse going through the roof, that's the blue line measured on the left-hand side of the chart, and you were looking at this in you know, mid of 2020, this was the result of fiscal stimulus, this was the result of bank lending sponsored by the government that was taking over the credit risk in case the borrowers would have defaulted during the pandemic, as we all know they have done. If you looked at this data series going through the roof and remaining relatively high throughout 2020, you could have easily forecasted that the orange line 12 months after would have also gone through the roof. And that effectively happened. Those were the year-on-year -year earnings in the S&P that we have seen rising all the way to an annualized 40% year-on-year growth in 2021. That's impressive. Now, fast forward to today, this credit impulse in the first half of 2021 actually slowed down pretty dramatically. So that's the blue line. There was no net new bank lending or very limited amount. The governments didn't pump again another large amount of fiscal stimulus. The last one was basically at the very beginning of 2021 in America. Since then, we haven't seen much on a pace of injection basis, right? So the blue line drops. That's the pace of growth of credit. Can't keep up. It actually drops. And with it, as you can see in the chart, also the orange line starts to drop. So the S&P earnings on a year-on-year -year basis start to become you know, more aligned to long-term trends. And the projection from analysts out there on the S&P earnings for next year are in the, in the high single-digit space. So we're talking 8%, uh, something like that, for 2023, also in the 8 to 10% area. If I look at my credit impulse, it tells me that these earnings are likely to disappoint on the downside. Now, does it mean equities are a dump? Not really, because as we, as we well know, it's about earnings, earnings growth and it's about valuations as well. So the valuation side of it can sort of offset or compound the negativity. The jury is still out on that. But it definitely tells me that the nominal growth pressures on the economy that many people seem to expect also going into 2022 are pretty much exaggerated. The credit impulse is telling me that um, rosy growth expectations in real terms and in nominal terms are likely not to fully play out. That doesn't mean that we are dropping to 0% growth next year because the labor market healing is able to provide some additional tailwind to next year. So I expect earnings and growth to slightly disappoint next year compared to expectation, which are already coming down, by the way, on the result of COVID and Omicron scares for Q1. So, you know, the analysts are adjusting already to my baseline view being less optimistic than it was uh, for, uh, compared to theirs a few weeks ago. Um, I am expecting inflation as well to disappoint a bit um, the market consensus, which is at 4% year on year for December 2022 in the US compared to December 2021. Um, I am expecting nevertheless the Federal Reserve to uh, be, and any other central bank actually, even the European Central Bank, to be relatively aggressive on their stance next year, so to be willing to get away from the zero lower bound. So the result of a slightly disappointing nominal growth and uh, central banks nevertheless being pushing uh, a bit more on, on the hiking cycle will flatten curves uh, even further than it has already happened. So our playbook is more the 2018 playbook where the, the, the spread between five-year interest rates in America and 30-year interest rates in America went basically to zero or very close to that. So 
there is still some room to go, I believe, in, in that trade. And as we go into Q1, um, the, let's say I would still tend to favor growth stocks over value stocks here because Q1 is the most exposed quarter when it comes to nominal growth. I mean, that's because of the COVID situation we have already discussed before. Um, and I would not want to be largely exposed to dropping real interest rates, so to tips, for example, and any other asset that generally benefits from real interest rates being on a downward trend, as I expect real interest rates to slightly move up next year. And Alfonso, you have another uh, brilliant chart showing the credit impulse relative to the relative performance of, I believe, QQQ versus IWM. So NASDAQ tech stocks, very growthy stocks versus the small cap or mid cap value stocks. And even though it sounds, oh, when growth is slowing, you don't want to buy growth. Actually, no. When growth is slowing, you want to buy the secular growth stocks. You don't want to own the value stocks that are cyclical and depend on economic cycles to grow. Uh, can you uh, just just uh, walk us walk us through that a little bit? And also, in this environment, you, you perhaps want to own growth stocks rather than value value stocks. What other sort of assets do you want to own? And what assets do you want to dump, Alfonso? Basically, if I ask you back the question, if I tell you that um, the credit impulse is going through the roof, and therefore, with a bit of a lag, you're going to see these animal impulses, this spending into the economy, the consumer side being very optimistic because all of a sudden it has this huge new pool of credit in their hands. So they might want to spend it, they might want to get out and they might want to feel their purchasing power up. If I depict this environment, would you want to own the Russell? So value stocks that are really driven by the cash flows they're able to generate rather than the valuations of these cash flows or would you want to own the Nasdaq which is really a long-term secular force tech-based index that is mainly driven well it, it also posts super good earnings but the valuations of these earnings plays a large portion of it which one of the two in that case definitely the small cap value and I you know I want to own a let's say an, an industrial parts manufacturer rather than like Very Peloton good. but if growth is slowing I might take a second look at Peloton, you know? That's exactly the right answer. Also, on the way down in the credit impulse, if you know that the earning consensus estimates from analysts are likely going to be too optimistic because we are going to slow down in credit impulse, these animal spirits are going to be much less than forecast. We are moving back to a world where the secular trends are important, the ones you can't fight, demographics, technology, etc., which of the two are you going to own? Probably the Nasdaq in that sense. Again, is a relative measurement. So both indexes might drop or both might go up. We are here trying to measure which one of the two will perform better, right? The credit impulse peaked in Q4 2020. With the lag of nine months in about May, April to May 2021, you had a very clear signal that if you had to be invested in the stock market, the place to be was growth stocks at that point because credit impulse had peaked and was about to drop rather than the value stocks. Guess what? Fast forward from May 2021 to now, in the last seven months, the Nasdaq has outperformed the Russell by 20%. So the credit impulse is a very powerful signal. It's not the only thing that matters, but it informs the direction of travel a lot. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Alfonso, do you think that on a, on a fundamental sense, the reason for underperformance for value stocks will just be that companies are unable to pass along uh, costs from the, their raw goods that they have to buy into the, the finished goods that they sell to customers? You know, if you look at, let's say, the PPI in, in Spain, for example, it's extremely high. That is the inflation quote that, that companies have to pay. And yet the consumer price index, CPI, that they're able to pass on to consumers is not very high at all. So do you think that spread is effectively what they're going to pay? So inflation will actually be bad for these sorts of companies. Great question. The answer in short is yes. That is a problem for small cap value stocks and companies because the pricing power they have is generally much worse than large companies with a scalable uh, business model, obviously. So, of course, if you are almost a monopolist in what you do, you are going to be able to, uh, on, on a, you know, to scale up and to be able to pass through some of this cost to your consumer. If you are a small cap, small company, value company, then the likelihood you're going to be able to do so is much less. Alfonso, why is it that credit growth is slowing? If I were a bank, I'd be sitting on hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves. Defaults would be rec near record lows. I would start lending, but I guess I would be fired because the banks aren't, aren't lending. Why, why aren't the banks lending? <laughs> well, the question is interesting. Uh, banks don't lend reserves to start with. As I've shown in the past in the, in the Substack Macro Compass newsletter, in an article about Japan, I've pointed out that we have seen these... Um, experiment play out already 20 years ago in Japan, where the Bank of Japan started increasing their balance sheet. And when they do increase their balance sheet, what they do is uh, they increase both the asset and the liability side of the balance sheet. So on the asset side of the balance sheet, they effectively buy government bonds. That's the easiest way for them to increase their balance sheet. The liability, the offsetting item on the liability side, this is bank reserves. That's how it grows on the liability side. Those bank reserves are owned by the commercial banking system, right? So if we move to the private sector, the commercial banking system will, will basically see their bonds being bought by the central bank and being replaced one-on-one -on -one with bank reserves. So they will find themselves now an account at the BOJ going up by the amount equivalent, basically, to the QE that was done. Now, if you plot, which is what I did, uh, from, let's say, the mid-90s to the end of the 90s and beginning of 2000, the two lines that I just described, the BOJ balance sheet, Bank of Japan balance sheet, and the amount of the aggregated bank loans generated by the Japanese commercial banking system. Now, according to the old theory under which banks lend reserves, if you increase reserves in the system, at least a portion of those will be lent out, right? I mean, maybe not 100%, but let's say 10% of these reserves will be lent out. They will end up in Jack's account, Jack will spend, inflation will go up, right? Hey, sounds good to me, Alfonso. Yes. Sign me up. Nope, that's not how it works. So if you look at this chart, what would happen is that you would see the BOJ balance sheet going up and the line representing the bank lending activity from Japanese banks going down. What? Down. Not flat. Down. So it's not even that a portion of these reserves was lent out. It's exactly the opposite relationship you would expect. Japanese banks actually shrunk 
their lending book in this five to seven years period I analyzed. How is that possible? It's very simple. Banks don't lend reserves. That's not how it works. The commercial banking system, when it lends money, it creates new money. It doesn't need reserves to lend money. It doesn't need deposits to lend money. Actually, it works the other way. A bank lends, it creates new credit. This also creates a new deposit into the banking system because this money will ultimately be spent on a product, will make a big round around the economy, and will end up where? Again, in the banking system, because that's where we deposit overnight our savings, right? So the entire banking system will now have more assets and more liabilities at the same time. What, what is the role played by reserves in that? Very, very, very little is the answer. So a bank, I used to work for one until a week ago, basically, uh, when they decide to lend, they look at different things, not that they're reserves, I can tell you. So they look at, they look at, first of all, the yield they can generate on this loan. Is it going to be decent enough for me to take the risk? Ah, the risk. Okay, so is this borrower uh, somebody who's, you know, whose credit worthiness I can trust? Yes or no? And is the trade-off between the loan yields and the borrower credit worthiness there? What about the regulation? That's a very important part, which is often overseen. Uh, does the regulator want me to lend or not? If so, then the capital requirements attached to this lending activity will be rather shallow. If he wants me to be very careful, then it will require me to attach a lot of bank capital, capital of my shareholders to this loan. And it will make me, you know, very hesitant because my return on equity will be more difficult to achieve if I need to attach a lot of capital to this uh, loan I want to make. And in today's world, Jack, you have loan yields which are extremely low. Those are the results of risk-free interest rates being already pretty low, and then credit spreads, which are overlaid on top to reward banks for the credit risk they take when they lend, they're also very tight, right? So the combination, the absolute loan yield is very low. Regulation on the other side, it's pretty tight. So the combination and credit, credit or um, uh, let's say the borrower credit worthness, also not great. The amount of leverage into the system compared to the real cash flow generating activity from many companies, if you look at the leverage uh, of these companies, it's extremely high. So the entire, the whole combination is pretty poor, historically speaking, for a bank to incentivize it to lend out. If that bank has a trillion reserve or 20 trillion reserves, I can tell you the impact on this analysis will be almost zero. Wow. And to what you said, the pricing of the loans is very bad. To what degree would potentially higher rates on the front end make lending more lucrative? I, I've always heard, you know, banks borrow short and they lend long, so they like steep yield curves. But going through a few of the quarterly reports of some banks, I actually found that they actually care more about where the front end is than they, they care about how high it is, not just how steep it is. So, you know, what if we get a curve flattening like we've had where, let's say, the Fed funds is at 2% and the 30-year is at 1.5, that would be, they borrow short and they lend long, so that would be bad. But to what degree do you balance that against high rates are good, period? Another great question. And if you, let's say, uh, ask this question to 20 different uh, banks, the answer would be, yes, we like a steep yield curve, Yes, we like higher front-end real interest, uh, sorry, interest rates 
to be as high as possible. Actually, we like that even better if you ask us. Like if you ask us to prioritize, you ask this question to 20 banks, they will say, yeah, a flat yield curve, not amazing, but if five-year interest rates are at 3%, we can deal with that. That's fine. So um, actually your analysis from bank reports was pretty good because that is very important. And um, when it comes to will higher front-end interest rates incentivize bank to lend a bit more, the answer is on a net basis, I think, yes, a bit. But please consider that of course, on the asset side of a bank balance sheet, banks can decide to do a few things with their asset side. They can decide to increase the securities they own. They also are part of the asset side. Or they can decide to increase their commercial and industrial loans, for instance. So another thing, there are the other two or three components we discussed about uh, before. So credit spreads, uh, the, the credit worthiness of the borrowers, the regulation those will still, I think, make bank lending activity pretty shallow, but on a net basis, if front-end interest rates go up, there might be a, a slightly higher appetite from commercial banks to lend. It must be seen of the, if on the other side, which is the credit demand, so the private sector, does the private sector want to have more credit? The private sector debt as percentage of GDP and as percentage of disposable income in the US is really very high on an historical basis and also in Europe, also in any other place. So the private sector is already leveraged. Does the private sector want to be more leveraged? That remains to be seen. Alfonso, uh, if viewers want to find out more about bank reserves and lending and quantitative easing, I really urge them to read your article about everything you, you heard about central bank money printing is wrong. Fantastic. By the way, Alfonso, I have to say just for the viewers, you know, if uh, sometimes when you trade options, you get what's known as a free option where you can sort of buy an option for zero. I would say that at this juncture, that is what your newsletter is. Fantastic wealth of knowledge that even if you know someone's been trading for 20 years, they will learn a lot. And then people who are new to the game obviously will learn it all as well. My question, Alfonso, there's a chart of QE before asset purchase and after asset purchase. And a pension fund goes from having government debt, let's say a treasury bond as an asset, then they have, uh, after the asset purchase, they have a deposit. My question is, what can the pension fund do with that deposit? Can they buy stocks with it? Can they lend money? Can they, can they do anything interesting? Or are, they as, are their hands as tied as commercial banks? So their hands are pretty tied too. Um, and they're tied again by regulation, which is, I think, the most important uh, overseen driver of... Uh, investment decisions out there. So people don't pay too much attention to developments in that space. It is paramount important to keep track of that. So pension funds, for instance, are highly regulated entities. They have an asset allocation model, which is uh, very much scrutinized by the regulators because it ultimately decides how the pool of entitlements, pension entitlements will effectively be allocated. So it has a, a relatively large uh, impact on society and on the sustainability of this entitlement to be paid off when it comes to pension contributions in the end. So of course, Jack, if um, quantitative easing, uh, as we described multiple times, it, it forcefully swaps the composition of the asset side of the balance sheet of the private sector. It makes it uh, from X 
where X is maybe some bonds in there to an amount of bonds that is by definition less than X because those bonds get basically acquired by the central bank and they get swapped by with an asset. And the asset that they get swapped is either a bank reserve if you're a commercial bank or a bank deposit if you are not, in this case, the pension fund. Both new assets have, almost by definition, a pretty low interest rate attached to it. So at the moment, zero about anywhere in the world, <laughs> or negative, uh, if you're unlucky, like in Europe. Um, and uh, uh, as well, zero duration risk. And why do I say that? Like zero interest rate risk. They don't, they don't serve any purpose. They are inert assets effectively sitting on the asset side of your balance sheet. They serve um, for a bank, for instance, liquidity, uh, regulatory liquidity. Um, they fulfill certain criteria when it comes to regulatory liquidity ratios, but nothing more than that. So a pension fund now has less bonds, uh, has also less um, coupons and less interest rate they can earn from these reserves. So if you do this big enough, long enough, and the volatility in different asset classes is also reduced at the same time, and perhaps the economic cycle seems okay, then few of these private sector entities will decide to do something to rebalance their asset side of the, of the balance sheet. And this something might be reallocating to higher yielding, higher risk assets, but it's not only about the, the yield they can get from it, it's also about the function they have on their balance sheet. If you're a pension fund and you need to pay a pension entitlements 30, 40 years from now, Jack, and you have a certain yield requirement to make the system sustainable, and you have now this asset side that is more concentrated in zero interest rate risk, zero yield, you probably will want to have something that has an interest rate risk to offset the interest rate risk you run on the liability side. We are talking 30, 40 years down the road where you are, you are forced by regulation to pay out this contribution. You might want to hedge some of that interest rate risk by acquiring assets on the asset side. So there is a portfolio rebalancing channel, as it's called. Mm. Uh, it's very difficult to measure and to quantify, but it's a, uh, it's a very um, convex behavior, as I call it, from, from market participants. So what I learned in my seven years running a, a very large portfolio is that risk takers, interestingly, tend to be more prone to take risks once the situation has stabilized, once they're comfortable with what's going on. The moment you get chaos, that's when people do not want to take risks. Even if their asset side of the balance sheet is very conservative, it has been modified by QE. There are bouts of volatilities where people are really afraid to put this balance sheet and this risk-taking capability um, at play. Yeah, that makes sense on the volatility side. When the VIX is at 80, that's when no one wants to sell volatility, even when it's juiciest. And when the VIX is at 10, the cheaper volatility gets, the more they want to sell it because they have to sell more to generate right. more yield. Alfonso, earlier we talked about the flattening of the yield curve going up on the short end, going down on the long end. That's in the spot market. Take us through, though, the, the futures market, the, the overnight index swap. And in particular, you've got a chart on the market-implied Fed funds terminal rate. So the Fed funds is the 
overnight rate that the banks lend to each other that the Fed essentially controls. What is the terminal rate and how does that relate to the, the futures and the, the overnight index swap? You asked a very vital question before about why long-term interest rates are actually not going to the moon as many had wrongly forecast at the beginning of the year where 10-year Treasury yield, the projections were 3%, Jamie Dimon said 4%, he says that every year, and that he wants Treasury yields to be 4%, of course. And fast forward to today, we will close 2021 at shy of 1.5%, once again, despite having the largest ever MMT-like experiment in humanity where the fiscal side and the monetary side concerted went in together, went in for long, went in very powerful. Central banks remained accommodative for a very long time after that, all the way through one and a half years after the pandemic crisis point were hit, inflation printed at 6% and treasury yields are one and a half percent. I mean, seriously, what is going on? My question exactly, Alfonso. One of the ways to sort of think about that is, what is the market, what, one of the ways to isolate the concept is what is the market pricing in when it comes to the federal funds terminal rate. So the terminal rate is the Fed funds highest point at the end of the hiking cycle. So how do I look at that? I basically take forward yields. So this is the market implied yield that the Federal Reserve, the Fed funds will basically hit five years down the road when the hiking cycle is maybe over, right? So that's what basically the market would expect the hiking cycle to last four to five years. Let's see what they're pricing in. So I plotted it on a chart in nominal terms from 2007 to 2021. That's what you can see in this chart. There is a blue line that points to a pretty strong and undeniable downward trend in this pricing. So in 2007, the bond market thought that the Federal Reserve hiking cycle could end at 5%. In 2013, they thought it was at 3%. In 2018, when Trump, basically the year before, went with tax cuts and unemployment rate was at 3.5% and participation rate was two full percentage points higher than it is today, still the bond market thought 275%, that was it. And that was before the Powell pivot when he, he stopped yes. raising rates. Then he was forced to abandon his own autopilot stance because the bond market had started punishing him basically to, for being too tight, effectively. Right. And, and by the way, the stock market punished him too when the stock market crashed hard at just about this time of year in, in December. And... Powell pivoted. So we'll see if we, we get that. Uh, I think it's too early for that. We can discuss about the political incentives on why the Fed will probably try to push through uh, the hiking cycle anyway. But fast forward to today, I want to attract the, audio, the audience attention to the fact that we're looking at one and a half percent shy of that today. So the bond market thinks the Fed can literally hike rates from zero to one and a half percent and we are done. Now, interestingly, this trend is downwards, and every time the Fed tried to basically follow this implied hike path, something bad happened. So in 2013, it was the taper tantrum. In 2018, it was the autopilot Q4 stock market crash, and then Powell had to pivot. 
And now we are looking at a bond market that seems to have learned the lesson a little bit. So it doesn't even try to price a hiking cycle that is any more than mediocre. Stops at 1.5%. If you look at this chart on a real basis, so if you adjust it for inflation, that's my next chart. What I simply did here is I took this terminal rate pricing from the market and I subtracted a 2% inflation target from the Federal Reserve. Now, we basically reach the same chart on a real basis, inflation-adjusted basis. But you're subtracting a constant 2% rather than what inflation right. is well, realized. Like, you're not subtracting the 6.2. Yeah, so no, I'm not subtracting that. So I am both, um, let's say, taking off from this the high inflation print and the low inflation prints. I'm just assuming that the market knows and expects the Federal Reserve to have a 2% inflation target pretty symmetric, sometimes it's going to be up, sometimes it's going to be down, but they want 2%. And it then prices nominal interest rates, federal, uh, Fed funds terminal rates accordingly. So we then get to a real inflation-adjusted Fed funds terminal rate pricing by the bond market. 10-year average after the great financial crisis is minus 0.2% in real terms. So effectively, the bond market on average over the last 10 years, thought the Federal Reserve could hike and bring real interest rates to minus 0.2%. Today, this level is, let's say, minus half a percent or so. So we are at a level in real interest rate terms that is, you know, slightly below the 10-year the, the average expectation when it comes to the terminal Fed fund rate. But what I want to, to stress here is that in real terms, the market is speaking super clear over the last 10 years. There are cycles, you can see them in the chart. So in the blue box, you can see this pricing moving up and then moving to be very pessimistic. Look at the 2020 drop, almost negative 2% on that chart. It can get very, you know, uh, cyclical, but ultimately the bond market over the last 10 years has consistently thought that the Federal Reserve and the entire system cannot afford real interest rates to be positive in any meaningful sense. That is what the fixed income market is telling you. Alfonso, now I want to turn to COVID-19 and in its impact on the market. You know, the economy and the economy has shown that it can function very well during COVID. Uh, people can still buy things, whether they go into the store or buy things from their home. But I believe it was the Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, you were expressing concern to me that your models were showing that uh, the, the vaccines, which you know people they get a vaccine and they think, oh, I'm good for life, you know, they wane over time in the same way their efficacy wanes over time. I should say, in the same way that if you get COVID, your your protection wanes over time, and that we were going through a particularly vulnerable cycle. Your, your timing, Alfonso, as ever, was perfect because Friday, uh, the day after Thanksgiving, was of course a mega sell-off. But to me, uh, your worries are less about Omicron and more about this vaccine story. So can you talk about uh, the vaccine efficacy uh, argument and then also to what degree has this Omicron variant been oversold uh, or now, now that we've had a two-day epic reversal, has it been overbought? So um, we weren't focusing too much on Omicron in our discussion, Jack, for a reason. Before Omicron, which we, by the way, don't know much about to today, um, I was focusing on the fact that 
um, the vaccine efficacy actually fades away already, I think, significantly at month number four. It's not that I think, it's demonstrated by science. So uh, there are a couple of large sample studies that show that uh, different vaccines, doesn't matter exactly which shot did you get on, on a double shot basis or on a single shot basis, the efficacy against hospitalizations, which is really what matters here, so basically the stress we put on the health system, um, the efficacy against hospitalizations, actually, it's 95% approximately for the first three to four months, and then at month number four and month number five drops to 85%, and then at month number six drops to pretty lower levels. So we are in the 60% area. And despite these percentages might look still very high, I was already worried from of the drop from eighty five from ninety five percent to eighty five percent efficacy against hospitalizations. And why is that? Because the denominator is huge. We are talking about tens of millions of people that have got a double shot that have been told that the double shot was basically immunizing them. They had come back to normal life. They had green pass that was worth at least six months so everybody at month number three four and five felt extremely comfortable they could go on with their social life and they were fully protected they were still protected on a pretty high percentage against hospitalizations we're talking 85 percent but this this drop of 10 percent applied to a huge denominator of people that are less protected can put a strain on the health system itself already at month number four, at month number five. At month number six, when this percentage drops to the 60% area, that's even more acute of a stress. Now, why are these months four, five, and six so important? Because the median double shot injection that happened in Europe and in the US happened between June and July. On average if you take the median person his double shot was done in July his second shot was done in July now as we're talking about July and if we move like four months forward we end in November five months forward we end up in December and that's where my model was flashing a pretty scary uh, gray uncovered area because the booster shots campaign was not proceeding well we had only boosted five ten percent of the population at that point way too little to restore immunity and we had basically this winter wave coming in with temperatures dropping people being told they can go out and have a party because they're protected effectively by the second shot but the science was showing me they weren't so when i was looking at uh how are we gonna handle this december November, December, January, February period until we are able to give boosters to a large enough portion of the population to restore this immunity process, my model was telling me we're going to deal with it very poorly. And then we were discussing that bilaterally and then immediately Austria in, in Europe announced the, uh, announced the lockdown, right? And then basically Germany followed and then many more countries started to be more alarmist and then the Omicron thing, of course, compounded it and then market reactions was of course the headline went on omicron and it stole the the show effectively but the the let's say this this very delicate winter dealing with the with the vaccine efficacy fading away and the booster campaign being way too slow to offset that 
had always been there on my model, even before Omicron became a thing. Mm. Alfonso, can you share uh, one trade with us? I know you, you, you still like the curve flattener. Uh, long-term yields go down, short-term yields go up. But I believe you're also short some tips, uh, or, or that, that's a trade you're considering, yeah. the Treasury Inflation Protected Security. So naturally, the Treasury is paying you after it's uh, indexed to the CPI. So you're, quote, protected from inflation, and that now is trading at a negative yield. And it has two components, the nominal yield, which is what the 10-year yield is, and then the uh, inflation break-even, which is what the sort of market is pricing in for inflation for the next 10 years. Why do, are you considering shorting some of these tips? Actually, I'm considering uh, putting that position on. It's not yet in, um, in my list. Uh, you can find the list if you just subscribe to the Macro Compass on Substack. It's free, so everybody can access it. Every week I send out a letter where you can see how the portfolio changes, if there are any considerations on asset allocation, on more tactical investments like this one. Yes, I'm considering um, basically underweighting or shorting the tips market. You can do that very simply by reducing the exposure to this ETF or this asset allocation uh, in your portfolio if you have it already or if you're a more um, yeah, institutional uh, sort of guy or more derivative-based guys, there are other ways to implement it on a more active way. But the idea is that real interest rates from here, I think, are heading up. And um, the basically real interest rates are effectively the, the difference between nominal interest rates and inflation expectations. So you get real interest rates going up uh, via a combination of uh, nominal interest rates uh, going up and inflation expectation not able to be to keep the pace or basically nominal interest rates you know staying where they are and then inflation expectation dropping so you have this real interest rates corridor that opens up and that makes tips actually not perform very well why do i think real interest rates are going up this is contrary to the structural view so on, on on a very long term i think real interest rates are bound to be very very low as i've shown as well price by the market i tend to agree with that there are structural components we can briefly touch upon on why do i think real interest rates over the long term will be very low but as we need to allocate capital with a let's say six to twelve months horizon i would rather underweight tips at this stage now, nominal interest rates at the front end are already repricing up and are, in my opinion, very likely to reprice up a little bit further at the short end because the Federal Reserve has, a, I think, both a monetary policy and a political incentive to get away from the zero lower bound. Biden faces elections in uh, 2022, the midterm elections in November 2022, and one of the things he definitely wants to keep under control is inflation because real wages are not growing as he wants them to grow. If real wages grow, then the purchasing power of his voters, to make it very simple, will also grow. And this will probably give him a better platform to be re-elected in November 22. And he wants to make sure the Federal Reserve is able to accompany the healing of the labor market, but he also wants to tame inflationary pressures. So the Federal Reserve is effectively uh, I think not willing that much to tolerate this pretty large inflation overshoot. They have already communicated that. And I believe the 2022 path for tightening of monetary policy might be relatively robust. The credit impulse is slowing, that is correct. But on the other hand, the labor market is slowly healing, which gives a 
last small tailwind to this cyclical recovery, which might accommodate the Fed to tighten in a relatively strong fashion. So if the labor market continues to heal, then, you know, consumer spending will probably be still relatively robust. You have the one of the last tailwinds to this recovery, and then the Federal Reserve can effectively proceed with, you know, reducing accommodation. Front-end interest rates will probably continue to price this relatively hawkish scenario. So nominal interest rates at the front end go up. What happens to inflation expectation is that if I look at them today, one-year inflation swap in America is almost at 4%. So the market is pricing that the December 22 CPI, last time that I checked, will basically be 4% higher than the already pretty high December 2021 inflation that we are likely to get very soon. So I would tend to think that these inflationary pressures can underperform market expectations. And I'm not saying that inflation will print at 0% in 2022, but I would expect them to undershoot from that perspective. So the combination of nominal interest rates uh, being able to reprice up and inflation expectation at the, the front end underperforming pretty high market consensus makes front-end real interest rates and tips not very attractive. So it's one asset class I do not look to overweight, but I'm considering actually underweighting in my asset allocation model. And how do you go about putting on these curve-flattening trades? We go long the, the long end and short, or as you say, perhaps underweight the short end. You've got an article on Macro Compass about five rules to not suck at trading. How do you implement that? What you know, the sort of you've been in this game for a long time, so you you know certain things. And what would someone who's newer to the game, you know, what are what are something that, that they could do to, to not yeah. suck at trading? So um, if I basically look at um, what I call the win ratio of my uh, let's say medium short to medium term oriented active macro trades, then this would be anywhere around 55 to 57%. It's not a great number, is it? I mean, people would say this guy is right uh, one time and wrong one time. I mean, it's just a monkey throwing darts, right? Uh, now, actually, uh, that 5 or 7% above 50 is already decent and it helps, but what really helps is to be humble about your views which means that when you form a macro opinion and then you find a decent risk-reward expression of this macro opinion, you have to size the position according to the expected volatility in the asset class, not to be emotional about it, which means that if the trade is not working, which means either the entry point was wrong or your entire narrative was completely wrong, then you have to take the loss. There is no secret. You just take the loss and you move on to the next potential possibility. If you don't do that, what happens is that your losses will end up being pretty large. And despite you make profit sometimes, your year-end PL is going to be negative. If you do the opposite and you are humble about your wrong trades and you cut them relatively quick, and also here there is, let's say, a study to be made on where to put stop losses and why to put stop losses and, and where, but if you in general are able to stop your ego out, as I say, so literally don't get involved with your ego in your trades, at the end of the year, you will have a number of profitable trades and a number of non-profitable trades, but the losses you generate on these non-profitable trades will be smaller 
than the profit you generate on the profitable trades, which means your year-end P&L is going to be green. And this is a, such a simple uh, recipe that many of the friends I have in hedge funds or in other funds always applied with success. And if you can't apply this rule, it's very difficult for you to be successful. There are others. If people are interested, they can check out my uh, my article at the Macro Compass. It's one of the ones I published in summer. Again, everything is free, guys. So feel free to go there and have a read. Yeah, it's that you have convexity when you cut your losers and you double down on your winners. You have convexity. So when you have a winning position, it makes you more money than you lose which you with your losers, which you cut relatively quickly. Alfonso, you, you mentioned earlier the secular drags on growth, on inflation, those being... Uh, Un, um, you know, uneconomic debt and also demographics. I hear those phrases a lot. I don't fully understand that argument. Can you explain why debt and demographics are sort of a recipe in your mind for lower long-term yeah. yields? So um, I think the visual representation of this is very powerful. So I have two charts for the listeners. Uh, one shows U.S. debt to GDP uh, inverted on the left-hand scale in orange, and the other one shows 30-year real interest rates in blue on the right-hand side. So as debt-to-GDP in orange becomes larger, remember it's inverted, guys, so the line drops, but actually debt-to-GDP is increasing, real interest rates actually drop, which is completely counterintuitive. It's against textbook, but there is a reason why. Our monetary system is basically built on continuous credit expansion. That's how we have this wealth effect. We basically create new money every time we lend and we therefore increase the amount of basically available money to the system at any point in time today. And we roll over this credit. We keep on increasing it. That to GDP in America was, let me see, Six, less than 60% in 2001, as you can see, and now it's uh, you know, 130%. And if you sum up the private sector, we are at 300%, 300% of GDP. So this ratio is bound to continue to go up. The only way to bring it down is via so-called austerity policies, which is nothing else than the government draining resources from the private sector and the banking system freezes them. It just says, look, I don't want to lend anymore. The economy then slows down pretty aggressively and all the weaknesses of our monetary system are exposed when we go that way. We tried in Europe for quite a while and it didn't really turn out to be uh, a very good experiment. At this point in time, I think uh, many out there have either understood or internalized that our system is built on credit creation. Now, if you continue to create credit, and uh, let's say the productivity of this marginal debt creation, credit creation, is pretty low because you just keep on doing this exercise to keep the system afloat. It's not that you're creating credit for productive outlays. Unfortunately, that's not the case today. You're just doing that to, to keep the ball rolling and kick the can down the road. Then the equilibrium interest rate for this system not to implode is lower and lower. That's because if... The typical example I bring is the housing market. So if you look at a house as a 100% financed instrument, so it becomes a bond, so it becomes a bullet of payments on your mortgage, you didn't use any equity, let's make this example, right? Then 
Yeah, it, it happens. I mean, here in the Netherlands, it's quite common. It's not common everywhere, I know, but it's just to make an example. 100% LTV, the bank lends all the amount uh, that you need to buy the house. You basically put no equity apart from paying the notary and a few other costs. And if you do that on a, on a 30 year mortgage basis, you effectively have a 30 year bullet bond. So you pay mortgage installments as coupons, basically. And you tend to look at that as a, as a, as a monthly installment, as, as a bond, basically. Now, if you drop the interest rate that is attached to this mortgage, so interest rates basically drop, then all of a sudden you can afford a much higher upfront price for this house because, you know, as interest rates are lower, also your mortgage installments will be lower. Now, what that is effectively is uh, increasing, creating a wealth effect out of extending credit, in that case to buy the house, and lowering the interest rate attached to the credit. And that's what we have been doing for the last 40, 50 years, since 1971. So the increase of leverage for unproductive purposes is one of the reasons behind the structural drop in real interest rates. The other one, Jack, is demographics. So I'm not the first one to plot that, I maybe do it in a creative way, but this is a chart which was highlighted in, in the last article of the Macro Compass, which shows in blue the US labor force growth on a 10-year moving average on the right-hand side of the scale, and on the left-hand side of the scale, the Fed funds terminal rate, so what we talked about before. And also here, on a 40-year basis, of course, the chart looks uh, pretty good and the visual correlation looks on a trend basis at least pretty decent and there is a reason for that so as the US labor force growth on a 10-year moving average basis used to grow almost at 20% in the 80s and then it still grew at 12 14% at the end of the 90s it now grows at 4 to 5% on a 10-year moving average basis so the amount of new people entering the labor force, these are people that are contributing actively to economic output rather than being retirees or inactive people that are not contributing and that are absorbing basically resources from, from the private sector and from the economy. The amount of new entry of these people is actually on a pace of growth pretty low. And the US amongst developed markets is actually doing pretty decent from that perspective. If I plot the same chart for Europe, geez, man, that looks really bad. But not as bad as China, right? Yeah, well, if you then plot these charts to 2050 and the United Nations has a fantastic study on that, you will see that also the US will have, unfortunately, this, this blue line moving towards zero at some point pretty quickly. The U EU is already there. China, Russia, etc., are even dropping already below zero and projected to drop below zero. So the overall picture is that we have less people entering the labor force every year. As this happens, you naturally have less people able to actively contribute to long-term growth. And as a result, as long-term growth is you know, less powerful, the potential real growth over the future is much less, the equilibrium interest rates for the system not to implode, is again lower and that is reflected by the bond market that has accordingly priced fed funds terminal rate to be lower and lower a lot to think about yeah it, it's so fascinating i think you can say in japan they have a very very low immigration rate it's you know 99 percent homogenous country essentially 
Uh, so you really don't get any exogenous labor market growth, where in the U.S. we have a fair number of you know, immigrants coming in, which does. In Europe, it's, it's less. Um, a lot to think about, Alfonso. Final question is, when I interviewed you a few months ago, I asked you about crypto, and you said, look, crypto as a percentage of the total assets in the world of stocks, bonds, derivatives, it's a tiny fraction. So I, I give crypto the attention that that deserves of, you know, like 50 basis points of attention. Uh, do you still think that? And you know, have you had any thoughts uh, over the past few months, whether it's, it's correlation to the stock market, uh, the, the cyclical nature of, of crypto, you know, is crypto a, a macro asset as yeah. well as, you know, if you were to allocate, would it be Bitcoin or do you like any of the other alts or, or do you think everything is bubble? So, no, I'm not a maximalist and I cannot discard an entire uh, digital asset class saying it's worth zero. Um, for somebody to say it's worth zero, it means that his probabilistic assessment of the future gives him a hundred percent certainty that this is a bubble. Now, I challenge everybody to have a hundred percent certainty on anything which is not his death, let alone uh, the digital asset space to be a complete bubble. So, the, the, being a max, and, and on the other end, Jack, you will not get me uh, on the other side of the spectrum saying that we're going to buy. Uh, uh, pizzas denominated in Bitcoin, and that's going to be the only way to do it in five years from now. Oh, but Alfonso, we'll just we'll, we'll edit it so you may, you will post a clip so it makes you says everyone's going to be buying pizzas in five years. <laughs> well, <laughs> please don't do that. Uh, but this this asset class, I think, deserves literally a uh, less polarized discussion. Jack, the discussion is extremely polarized. It's not even a discussion. It's just people basically insulting each other. I am more in the in the middle camp where I treat this as an asset class. It is an asset class. It is pretty small compared to all the rest, real estate, stocks, bonds, of course. But it's growing, so it deserves a certain attention, of course. Um, and the way I think about it is uh, effectively uh, a call option on how many people believe it's a call option. So that's the starting point. And, and no, look, but the call option itself is the feature that I want people to, uh, to understand here. So the way I treat digital assets is um, please allocate the right amount of wealth such that the drawdowns of this asset class and the volatility do not change your long-term plan and the role that this asset should play in your portfolio. Now, what is this role? This role is a... Uh, again, it's a call option, so the payoff has to be relatively convex here. You should be able to uh, afford stomaching the volatility and the drawdowns, while at the same time benefiting from a potential pretty large payoff. This pretty large payoff is that this space continues to grow. There are structural reasons why it could, all linked to DeFi, to blockchain, to where the world is going, which is definitely a more tech world and a more DeFi world than it was five years ago, that's undeniable. So you can get exposure to that. You can get also exposure to an asset that on a very remote possibility might play a role when it comes to uh, more people believing in its functionality and wanting to use it more and more over time and perhaps even considering it a more institutional place where to allocate money. So you get exposure to this potential positive convex payoff, but the maximalist discussions I hate, and I also hate the sizing of this position in your portfolio being completely 
um, uh, non linked to any risk analysis, you know, just a a, uh, a belief sort of asset. There are no belief assets. There are assets that have a potential return, a payoff and risks. This is no different than any of those. Yeah, and it it depends on how much investors can stomach volatility. If they want to allocate 100% crypto, they should be able to stomach the you know, huge drawdowns that crypto has had in the, in the past, um, regardless of all cycles. I, mean, I think Bitcoin is something like 85%. Uh, you know, and also the the reason for that is because then you're most likely to sell when you're most freaked out when it's had a a huge huge correction, and you're most likely to buy buy at the top. Alfonso, I want to ask you: Can you summarize your views uh, about growth and inflation? Where do you think we're headed over the next year? Why do you think that we'll continue to see a curve flattening? You know, inflation break evens go down, and what do you think it's going to impact on on the stock market? Um, you know. I guess there's the growth to value factor, uh, there's the cyclical, the industrials, but also just the S&P 500. You know, is, 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 is this a bad time to perhaps be allocating to the S&P? Alfonso, thank you so much for coming on Forward Guidance. It's been an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to remaining in touch. Thank you, everyone, for watching. You can follow uh, MacroAlf on Twitter. That's his handle, at MacroAlf. And then definitely check out his newsletter, The Macro Compass. Alfonso, you're also a Real Vision contributor. Uh, congratulations on that. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks uh, for having me, Jack. And uh, please check me out where you, uh, of course, mentioned already and follow Real Vision. These guys are doing an, an amazing job, I think. So it's always worth to spend some time watching, of course, forward guidance from Jack, but also Real Vision. Wonderful. Alfonso, thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alfonso Pecatiello. Please stay tuned for up-and-coming episodes of Forward Guidance, which are released on the BlockWorks YouTube channel every Tuesday and Fridays. I'm really excited about what we've got going on in Forward Guidance. Just in the month of December alone, I'll be speaking to Felix Zuloff, Stephen Bregman, Ronald Stifler, as well as a former senior Fed trader on the Opens Market Desks in New York. I'll be speaking to that person the day after the FOMC meeting scheduled for Wednesday the 15th, which many, including myself, expect to be explosive. So to keep in touch with all of this so you don't miss a single episode of Forward Guidance, please subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel. As well, you can uh, subscribe to Forward Guidance on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever other podcasts are found. So uh, yes, and as always, thank you for watching.